Uh, Matt, unfortunately, is not here to give us more uh, information on the specific. <laughs> unfortunately, oh my God, it's the best night of my life. <laughs> Mice uh, are the sorry, worst. <laughs> Welcome to Freely Filtered, the occasional podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NFJC journal clubs. NFJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club, where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the articles that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, you should talk to your doctor before making any medical decisions. As Dr. Bartabedian says, We may be doctors on the internet, but we are not your doctors on the internet. This podcast will discuss off-label indications for medications. Hello, my name is Joel Toff, but most people know me better as Kidney Boy. Tonight, I am joined by Swapnil Hiramath. So hi, my name is Swapnil Hiramath. I'm a nephrologist and epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa, and I tweet at hswapnil. Jenny? My name is Jenny Lin. I am a physician scientist and attending nephrologist at Northwestern University. I tweet at Jenny J. Lin. Samira? Hey everyone, I'm Samira Farouk, transplant nephrologist at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. I tweet at SS Farouk. And tonight we are joined by newcomer Jordi Cohen. Thank you, glad to be here. I'm Jordi Cohen. I'm a nephrologist and epidemiologist at the University of Pennsylvania, and I tweet at Jordi underscore BC. Tonight, we're on Freely Filtered, we're discussing Pexivis, which is one of the biggest medical reversals in nephrology since high-dose ESA was disrupted a decade ago. Pexivis examines some of the sickest and most exciting patients we see as nephrologists. Though the diagnosis of ANCA-associated vasculitis is not common, It is exciting. It is the moment in nephrology where we feel that minutes matter. We see a patient with AKI and there are a bunch of red cells and some proteinuria in the urinalysis. Maybe the patient is hypoxic with a chest x-ray that looks like bilateral pneumonia, but there isn't a fever. Maybe there's a suspicious rash. I know that I usually can feel that this is going to be different when I spin the urine. And when those red cell casts or the labs turn up with ANCA positivity at a high titer, everything turns. Things happen faster, lines get placed, calculations like, let's confirm this with biopsy first before we give the therapeutics, fall away, and we're usually rewarded for this vigilance. Patients usually go into remission. Often, even patients on dialysis will become dialysis-free after a few months. We all know the drill. Steroids, cyclophosphamide or rituximab, and plasma exchange if the patient has bad kidney disease or pulmonary hemorrhage. Or, let's face it, if we're worried... So here comes Pexivis, and it overturns the whole apple cart. Steroids? Sure, but not too much. Plasma exchange? Nope, doesn't seem to do much. And you can feel the whole institution of nephrology pushing back. First, Pexivis is announced 20 months ago at the, what was it, the uh, ERA EDTA. I'm sorry, Samira, what was the meeting again? It was the ERA EDTA annual meeting. It's the European national or international meeting. And this was not in, this was in June, not of 2019, but of 2018, 20 months ago. And this pretty significant study that really overturns how we train patients just kind of sat in limbo for a long time before it was published. And you can now know, you wonder how much pushback uh, the authors were getting from uh, the editors and maybe some of the co-authors. And then 
the accompanying editorial seems to kind of walk away from the results of the study itself, specifically looking at like the specifics on diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. They were recommending people to continue to use phoresis in that situation. And they were referencing a 20-patient observational case series, kind of overturning this uh, 60-patient uh, randomized controlled trial. So, and I've also, I've heard from multiple doctors state that they would continue to use plasma phoresis until the international guidelines changed. Those guidelines currently have, um, Cadigo currently has plasma exchange as a 1C recommendation in dialysis dependent patients or patients with rapidly rising creatinine and a 2C recommendation in diffuse pulmonary hemorrhage. So it, it just feels that we're really attached to the way we treat ANCA associated vasculitis. And this is a, a huge data dump that really changes everything in what I thought was a pretty unexpected way. But uh, Jenny, you had some uh, thoughts on this? Yeah. So I think one of the uh, ways we can tease apart the different uh, treatment arms and the treatment options and why the results are controversial is by first understanding the pathophysiology of the disease. And so I'm going to try my best to explain this verbally, but I do highly recommend that if you are listening to this to check out the review article on the pathogenesis of ANCA-associated vasculitis published in CJSON in 2017, and we'll link it in the show notes. One thought is that B cells or B lymphocytes are the main villains in this disease, and they produce and release anti-neutrophil cytoplasmic autoantibodies. So these are ANCAs, uh, which are the primary cause for this necrotizing small vessel vasculitis. The B cells operate as part of the adaptive immune system by secreting antibodies. And so for anyone who's not in the biomedical field who is listening, antibodies bind to antigens, which usually are foreign pieces of protein or parts of bacteria, viruses. In the case of an autoimmune disease, such as ANCA-associated vasculitis, that antigen is part of your own body. And so we call that an autoantigen. So wait a minute, you think there's people that are not part of medicine that are listening to this podcast. <laughs> that is literally the most optimistic thing I've ever heard. Yeah, I think we're in like the top thousand podcast, right? <laughs> <laughs> hey, Kidney Rebel might be listening, right? So uh, these B cells can then produce antibodies against autoantigens. And in the case of ANCA vasculitis, uh, they produce ANCAs against autoantigens MPO and PR3. Now, how MPO and PR3 become autoantigens in some patients is not entirely clear. Human genetic studies have identified an association between this disease and HLA, HLA genes. So this suggests that specific variations of HLA molecules are directed against MPO and PR3. Uh, these MPO and PR3 usually reside inside the neutrophils, which is another type of immune cell. So basically, if you have differences in your DNA sequence for the HLA genes that associate with this disease, uh, the proteins that are produced or encoded by the HLA genes are important players in this antigen recognition. And so genetically driven changes in HLA proteins might cause uh, some immune cells to react against MPO and PR3. On top of that, regulatory T cells in this disease have also been observed to be dysfunctional and don't suppress the ANCA-releasing B cells. So now once these autoantibodies are formed, they circulate in the body and this is when neutrophils, another type of immune cell, come into play. The neutrophils. Understand if this is a genetic thing, but th these people don't develop this disease till way late in life, right? 
Right. right. Presumably they're born with this genetic abnormality. I don't even want to call it abnormality, genetic difference. Yeah. So there are different types of genetic studies. Uh, these are genome-wide associations where the uh, variations that are associated, they could be coding or non-coding. But on top of that, because they are common variants, they may not actually produce very severe phenotypes. So you can detect them later. There's complex interactions kind of like diabetes, uh, maybe even hypertension, people develop them at different. I think also there's a there's a strong role for a complement that's been illustrated also with the efficacy of the C5A receptor antagonist. So it may be kind of like, even like atypical HUS where you need another inciting event, like an infection or something to kind of set off the complement cascade. Have we identified that second hit? Is there, do, do we... What do we, I'm, I'm trying to even think of any suggestion. I know my patients ask, why does this happen? And I always shrug my shoulder and say, it's complex. Yeah, but I, 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 mean, I think, I think an easy answer is, out of the is like an infection because, I mean, we know that there's comp- complement deposition in many cases. And, you know, the biggest trigger for atypical HUS is some sort of infection. Right. But that's, that's associated part vasculitis, have we identified an, an infection? Is that is that a, is that a, is there is there a prodromal with an infection? No, that, that's just my theory. No, I haven't seen anything for anti-GBM. I've heard um, you know, like smoking seems to be a trigger. It seems to be more common in smokers. Uh, some hyd- hydrocarbons actually, or something, um, and but not for ANCA. I haven't seen anything. Yeah. So basically, it's the microenvironment of the neutrophils that contain the MPO and PR3. So once these neutrophils have a reason to be low-key activated. So whether that's from inflammation from smoking, inflammation from cardiometabolic disease, maybe an infection, then the neutrophils release low levels of MPO and PR3 into circulation. And this is where the ANCAs from the B cells end up binding. Once you have that complex, it binds to the neutrophil receptors and fully activates the neutrophils. And remember, the role of an immune cell is to attack. So once they activate, they really stimulate the production of a lot of different pathways. So including complement C5A of the alternative complement pathway ends up being produced more. This then triggers a vicious cycle because that activates even more neutrophils. More MPO and PR3 are released. And then the strongly activated neutrophils also secrete or they just extrude intracellular contents that are known as NETs, which stands for neutrophil extracellular traps. So these are in the vasculature. They present more antigens and autoantigens such as MPO and PR3. And these traps are areas of intense inflammation, and they attract more immune cells such as macrophages that then infiltrate to try to clean up and repair this mess. But what ends up happening is the macrophages end up releasing more cytokines that signal to uh, fibroblast cells nearby to lay down collagen and fibrous material that then produces scar tissue. And that's where you end up seeing a lot of the crescents um, and scarring in the glomerulus. There are different stages of scarring and inflammation in this process. That's why in some of the discussion during the NEFJC chats, people were a little bit up in arms that uh, biopsies were not incorporated. We can get into that more in the methods, but the biological reason is that there is a fair amount of scarring and there's a lot of relapse with the disease. So when you're removing, so what plasma exchange does is it removes the ANCAs, right? And what rituximab does is it triggers a cell death of B cells by targeting the CD20 receptors. But if you have a fair amount of scarring already and you're not really being evaluated by biopsy, would you really benefit from those treatments? 
No, I was going to say, has anyone seen the C5A receptor antagonist used in practice? No, Abacoban? Is that the one? Yeah, I remember I, I presented yeah, yeah. it yeah. as a fellow in Journal Club and then never really heard yeah, about we, it again. We discussed it on NFGC, the first, uh, first uh, Abacoban Evo- trial. And I think, I remember Tom wasn't impressed uh, when he had done the summary. The larger trial is going on, so I guess we have to wait for the phase three this was sort of pilot data that they have published. Jenny, is this human or is this mice model? Probably a combination. There have been studies both in looking at cell culture in terms of uh, cellular pathways. Uh, for mouse models, my understanding is only for MPO. We don't have a good P- PR3 model. Uh, yeah, and then there's also you know some uh, histopathological correlations uh, with human and also what's uh, being measured in the serum. Awesome. So, 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 but they, you know, people had become so convinced with MEPEX. Did, uh, did you talk about MEPEX, uh, Joel? No, I didn't. I think let's let's leave it. Let's get to the methods okay, in this okay. study. You don't want me to talk about why this study was done. Well, that, uh, that's a great way to start with the methods. <laughs> so, so, so you can see that I have tight reins on this podcast. They exactly. Just do what they want. We, we filter. Nothing gets filtered. It's, yeah, it's, it's really filtered. Really exactly right. Wait, what are we? What are we talking about today? What's the study? We're gonna get. We're gonna get the Pexivis sometime in the okay. third hour. So, so just a brief note about Mepex because people are going to compare this to Mepex. Mepex was the other large trial that was done with plasma exchange a few years ago. It was um, again David Jane, who's the last author of Pexivas, is the first author of Mepex, um, and that was uh, pulse steroids versus plasma exchange. Um, one of the key things, of course, is in the plasma exchange, they did not get pulse steroids. So it was a comparison of uh, pulse steroids, IV methylprednisolone versus plasma exchange. That's one criticism people have uh, for whatever it's worth. Uh, but the other thing was, what was the result? The main one was that when it, the outcome was ESRD uh, in that trial. And ESRD was much less with uh, plasma exchange compared to uh, pulse steroids. And people are saying, hey, you know, Mepex worked and Pexivas didn't work. But that outcome is different because in Pexivas, the outcome is going to be ESRD or death. Sorry, ESKD. Um, Matt is not here, but we should call it ESKD, not renal kidney. So it's ESKD or death in in Pexivas. Uh, And if you, so I said, let's go back to Mepex. And if you look at the ESKD or death, it's actually not that significant in even in Mepex. The number of deaths are like 16 versus 19. And if you go, uh, there's a long, longer-term follow-up of MEPEX published by Mike Walsh this time in Kidney International a few years later. And he's trying to say over five years, there even in MEPEX, there doesn't seem to be much of a difference if you look at the ESRD, uh, even ESRD, but especially ESRD or death outcome. Uh, they followed it up with a systematic review as well, which was published in AJKD in 2013, which showed that for death, there is no difference between plasma exchange versus no plasma exchange. And for ESRD of death, it seems to be a very borderline effect in that meta-analysis pre-Pexivas with a p-value of 0.5 and the confidence interval is going to 0.99. So that was sort of the, the background why he, uh, why Mike and, and the, these investigators of Pexivas made the case that we still do need a large trial of, um, of plasma exchange. Right, so in, in summary, we got MEPEX, which A, didn't just test plasma exchange. It was plasma exchange versus another immediate therapy, which was super high dose methylprednisolone, like three grams or six grams, mm-hmm. was it six grams? And even their results, they had a strange outcome because they, it, it seems to me that ESKD plus death is a, a logical 
uh, composite outcome. It makes that one makes sense to me. I think those are both patient oriented outcomes. Patients care about both of those things. And, and MEPEX just was ESRD. And its significance, its significant benefit of one year seems to tail off at five years. Is that a fair summary? That's a fair summary. Um, the uh, uh, other thing that uh, Mike Walsh and other people have been making in that group is that we should really be doing large trials. We shouldn't be aiming for a trial that just have a p-value of 0.05. Uh, so trials that are powered just enough are not sufficient. Uh, we should be doing really large trials. You know, like, so that's the same McMaster group, Salim Yusuf, you know, doing the large cardiovascular trials. But it's one thing to do these large trials in cardiovascular area. How do you do that in ankyovasculitis? So, so there had been a big movement saying, hey, this is a rare disease. You really cannot do large trials. Um, Sorry, how many people were in uh, MedVex? 157, 140, 140 yeah. uh, something. Um, Sorry, MEPEX. I don't know if it's MEPEX or MEPEX. Yeah, MEPEX. So the uh, randomized is 137. So this is uh, uh, the sample size. So moving on to the methods, finally, before Joel rolls his eyes again, um, for Pexivas, the sample size was planned to be 700. So, you know, it's five times larger than MEPEX, uh, which was 137. The intervention, so again, this was a part superiority and part non-inferiority trial, uh, a two by two factorial. So there are two interventions being tested. So one comparison is of plasma exchange versus no plasma exchange. Uh, this was a superiority comparison uh, and they were aiming for a, a benefit of uh, 36%. So a relative risk of uh, 64. And the other comparison was that of um, standard dose steroids versus a reduced dose steroids. And the reduced dose steroids, you know, you can look up at the table that we have posted on the FJC. It, it drops very fast. You know, I would I would not have done that. And I've never done that so far. Um, we are just starting to do that for uh, reduced dose steroids. Now, again, reduced dose steroids, you do not expect it to be superior to standard dose steroids. Um, so that comparison was a non-inferiority comparison. And for a non-inferiority comparison, the key thing is what is the margin? So uh, it is not equivalence. It is non-inferiority. And for non-inferiority, we accept a certain degree of, you know, it may be a little bit worse. So how much worse would be expected to be? So for this, they said 11% is acceptable. And really, this wasn't powered uh, for that non-inferiority margin. Uh, it, this came up during the FJC discussion. They said, hey, 700 sample size is what we need for Plex. And with that sample size, what is the non-inferiority margin we can achieve? And they said, hey, 11%. And it was sort of back calculated. And he, he, Mike did say that was what they did. What do you think? Do you think 11%? Do you feel comfortable with that big of a difference? I kind of would care if it was 10% more than 10% worse. Where did their where did their margin come from? Uh, it was it's, it's usually so non-inferiority trials. Usually you would do you know you could have an expert opinion or you would do a survey of people saying what would be acceptable for you for the non-inferiority margin. And and the the intervention, let's say the comparison is standard of care, so in this case, standard dose steroids, there has to be some advantage of the non-inferior uh, intervention. Usually the non-inferior intervention is either safer or cheaper or simpler, um, but it's not safe enough for us to show a superiority, right? Uh, but if it's cheaper, you're saying, hey, it's cheaper, but you know, it's just almost as good, so we'll use it. And, and often it's a survey of people. In this case, I don't think it was a survey. It was like, hey, with the sample size, what can we achieve? Yeah. So let's go for it. Uh, I agree, 11% seems a little bit high-ish, uh, but as we shall see, it did not matter that much. 
you would have needed a very, very, very large sample size to actually see that large of that small of a mm -hmm. difference between groups. That's the key. I agree with you. I think that if they had chosen something a bit in mm -hmm. the middle, probably closer to 20% difference, that then I would have been a little bit more concerned. Yeah. But either way, I, 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 I think that it was purely judgment-based. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I agree with you, but that it's not necessarily. I mean, they, they powered it for plasma exchange, which I think was the exactly. most pressing mm -hmm. question, and they get, they took this. Uh, right, right. I mean, uh, I haven't calculated, but I've I've done it for other trials, and let's say you said five percent. If you needed a five percent difference, the sample size would go to you know two three thousand uh, patients easily. So it it yeah. goes up very fast, and you would say, hey, two percent, right? Then it would be like you know a million patients. Um, so for ankylosis, that trial would run forever. Uh, so I think that's acceptable. And not really yeah. r related to the methods, but have any of you ever not done plasma exchange because of fear of ad adverse events? We, we've we've avoided doing it in patients who had concomitant thrombocytopenia or the act of, and they didn't need and they didn't need dialysis, and the act of placing a line in itself would have been um, very dangerous for the patient. Yeah, I feel like in the transplant world, we have kind of a low threshold. We see antibodies, we'll do the plasma exchange. We see very little harm in the setting of, you know, normal platelet count and access that is not that hard to get. Mm -hmm. and, and there were people who, during the chat, who commented that, you know, the risk of infection is higher or the fact that plasma exchange removes good antibodies. So there may be some other effects. But I, I agree, I haven't, maybe I haven't had, I haven't looked for things. Uh, happening and when bad things happen we blame it on the other immunosuppression we are giving as well perhaps <laughs> who knows mm -hmm. um so the again so 700 patients is what they needed and to get those 700 patients uh it requires a lot of money so this trial was funded um in, in canada it was funded by the cihr which is sort of the nih equivalent but it, it there were 16 countries and 95 centers so um you know nih money doesn't go outside usa so in uk they had the national institute for health research um, in the Australia, they had the National Health and Medical Research Council, the French Ministry of Health, the Research Institute uh, in Japan, and the Japanese Agency for Medical Research and Development, and so on. So this was truly, you know, um, peer-reviewed funding from, you know, strong groups all over the world. So kudos to them for, you know, finding and uh, putting all this uh, stuff together. Yeah, 95 centers. Yeah, 95 centers, 16 countries. Like hurting. Cats. It is. It is incredible. incredible. Um, yes, it was North America, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and Japan was the only country from Asia. Mm -hmm. And and the oh. uh, they they did get some uh, industry support for providing you know the cartridges and some um, uh, consumables in uh, a few countries. Um, and let's look at the population briefly. I'm I'm okay with the population, but there are some people who have huge concerns. So let's look at uh, the population and the intervention briefly. So the population was 15 years of age of older, not 18. I don't know why 15. It's usually a disease of older people anyways. Uh, they could have NIV or relapsing ANCA-associated vasculitis. So either granulomatous uh, cysts with polyangitis, that's C-ANCA, or the microscopic polyangiitis, that's a P anchor, and they needed to have positive antibodies based on ELISA. The kidney involvement needed to be uh, with a GFR of less than 50, which could be either with the basis of a kidney biopsy or active urinary sediment. So as Jenny alluded to, kidney biopsy was not completely necessary. Um, and I will come back to that briefly. Or uh, So they need not have kidney involvement. They could also have pulmonary involvement with diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. 
uh, the there are a bunch of exclusion criteria, but the big ones that they could not have anti-GBM disease or dual ANCA plus anti-GBM. I guess because the evidence for Plex is a is a little bit better for for that, and they should not have had uh, plasma exchange, rituximab, cyclophosphamide, or dialysis in the you know few days to weeks before. Well, well this is a, 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 rem, a rem, what if this was a second occurrence, right? Because this disease comes back. What if they had plasma exchange two years ago? They allowed it, yeah. And so that's that a, cool. It's an interesting decision, and I think that this is exactly what they're getting at, where they want to do more trials, so they have to be a bit more pragmatic about it. They have to have much broader inclusion criteria than they otherwise normally would for a trial like this. Because this is a pretty heterogeneous population for a trial. This is, a Swapnil mentioned young age, it's probably because they knew they weren't going to get enough patients if they restricted the age. And that they had to do everything they could in their power to get as many potential individuals that would meet these criteria as possible, or this study would have gone on for 15 years. Right. Uh, so, so let's. They recruited for six years. That's mm-hmm. it is, yeah. right? 2010, 2010 to mm-hmm. 2016. And and the uh, the kidney biopsy because so uh, we were a site though I was in the site PI um, involved in the study. Some of the rationale was that often when when you have a patient with ankyl vasculitis in the ICU with pulmonary hemorrhage people are going to start plex right away. They are not going to wait for the kidney biopsy. So then if the plasma exchange has been started and then you do the kidney biopsy five days later and then you randomize, hey, they've already had the plasma exchange, you cannot randomize them. Um, and and the, on the other extreme, so, so when people say by excluding patients who did not have a kidney biopsy, you would be picking up you know, milder disease or just urinary sediment. I don't think that's necessarily true. You may actually have people with really bad disease and on the other hand, if we have, you know, someone with just a urinary sediment and ankyl titers and you don't bother to do a biopsy, uh, yeah, maybe it will be mild disease, maybe it will be chronic disease. But, you know, it's hard to say that the absence of the kidney biopsy biased the trial one way or the other. Maybe it biased it towards the null, perhaps, uh, so we can exclude a large findings. Uh, but, but we can, you know, come back to that in the discussion. So the uh, uh, interventions themselves, so plasma exchange was, uh, yeah. Well, I think this is, I just want to say, I think this is also one of the reasons the size is so important is that you start to get subgroups like just the groups that got biopsied be huge, right? Larger than any other trial has been done before. You know, it's just a fraction of pexivis, but it's still larger than meatpacks or any other trial, uh, even case series and case reports or uh, case series and, and cohorts. Exactly, uh, that's true, and, and that's the whole point. Um, so Mike's also one of the guys who has been pushing this fragility index thing. Uh, which, right, I know that it's Mike to you. For the rest of us, it's okay, Dr. Sorry, Walsh, sorry, lead sorry. author of the. <laughs> <laughs> so Dr. Walsh is also the uh, fragility index creator. Now the the stats people who hear this will roll their eyes. They hate fragility index. They think it's you know not uh, statistically sound, but. And I think his main... Yeah, me too. I hate that. (laughs) So, so, uh, but the... Yeah, Jordi. So I have issues with it, I will say, because we're we're working in a world where there are very small sample sizes. I mean, 700 is huge for a rheumatology study and is microscopic for a cardiology study. And so you're looking in situations where you're only going to be expecting very small numbers of outcomes. And yeah, tilting the scale just a small amount can make a big difference, but that's what you're looking for. You're hoping that whatever your intervention is, is going to tilt the scale in that small amount enough to save just a few patients. You're not expecting 
50% reductions in outcomes. Um, so I am, I think it's a great in concept to try to just help people understand the relative difference between what would have happened if the study had gone differently, but I think that putting a lot of weight on it for judgment of whether you can actually accept the validity of a, of a trial's outcomes isn't necessarily always yeah, fair. Yeah. Um, so before we, I, I just, I know Dr. Walsh loves the fragility index, and I know that Jordy hates it. But can someone <laughs> describe? Can someone describe the fragility index? I think it's super cool, but uh, maybe there's one listener. Yeah. Out so, there. so one listener. Yeah. One of the one of the non medical. Yes. Yeah, so, so kind of <laughs> yeah. Probably probably kidney rebels. Like, what the hell is he talking about? What's his fragility? Uh, so, index? so yeah. And, and, it's how fragile Joel's ego is when you uh, try to tilt the scale just a little bit away from something that he that he likes. It's it's exactly like that. So so. Uh, you, Jordy, you're you're no longer a guest. <laughs> you're a permanent member. <laughs> so so conceptually, it is. Let's say you have a positive trial, and you had you know uh, four people die in one arm, and eight people die in the other arm, and its P is you know point oh four or whatever. Um, if we move one of the events from one arm to the other arm, at, at what point will the P no longer be 05? It'll be larger than 05. So let's say from 4 and 8, it becomes 5 and 7, you know, because we moved one of the deaths from one arm to the other arm and the P is suddenly 0.051, that, then the fragility index is 1. Uh, on the other hand... So if you just move, one, if you just swap one patient from one group, from one outcome to the opposite... One arm to the other arm. Or... One, one arm to the other arm. So a patient that got drug A now got drug and died, got drug B and died, that throws the study from being significant. That to would insignificant. be a, a study with a fragility index of one. And that's a f on the other hand. Is it like a, a way a, to say like how robust it is, or is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jo Jordy's Jordy's really straining at the at the reins. But so let me just finish uh, before I let Jordy. We're just let's just, we're trying to define we're trying to define it before you throw right, it off. Right. So so the other hand. Jordy's, Jordy's filling up the bathtub to drown the fragility index right now. So, so on the other hand, there may be some study where, you know, you had five events in one arm and 50 events in the other arm. And in that sort of a study, you would need to, you know, move a lot of events from one arm to the other arm. And the fragility index would be, say, 20. Uh, I'm just making up numbers here. So, so, the, the, so what Mike is trying to say is that the fragility, the higher the fragility index, the more robust the findings are. Uh, statisticians say, and Jordy may have a better take on this, is that you know, it's just the p-value. It's another way of stating the p-value. Uh, yeah, that's right. And and but there are some pretty famous trials that have a fragility index of one, right? Isn't there? Where and it just it kind of boggles your mind that we put so much effort. Isn't the Teppel uh, mucomis trial like a fragility index of one? Yeah, yeah. And so if you think about how much insanity we suffered you, giving mucomus to everybody who's going to even smell some contrast and think about well if the, just one additional patient had had been uh had uh not gotten contrast nephropathy in the in the placebo group right that would have been enough to throw and one less in the and one more in the uh in the in the mucomus group that would have alleviated they would have never gotten published in the new england journal of medicine and this insanity would never have happened yeah. I think it's completely fair depending on the stakes that, that are in the game for whatever the intervention is. If you're looking at small mechanistic trials, for instance, I think that there's a, a lot to be said for a small number of outcomes. I think when you're looking at big trials that could impact how insurance covers major um, medi medications and major treatments and whether or not patients might live or die on a treatment, 
that and your stakes are much higher and it's more important to think about things like that. But I, I think it has to be considered in context very mm -hmm. carefully. Yeah. And I mean, we, we don't have an infinite amount of money to do, you know, large trials for every single question. Yeah. So it's kind of, you know, uh, we have a fixed envelope of money. Um, I would love to do randomized trial control all the time for every patient, but, you know, it, it's not realistic. And this is the point where Mike would, Matt would be sleeping uh, and, and pretending that. You know. Yeah, uh, where are we in the methods? Have we've uh, we got the Hoover enrolling, and we did some. Have we done power analysis? I think we've done power. <laughs> but analysis. what was the intervention? Have we done? Have we done. Have... Um, so the last thing that I'm going to say about the methods uh, is that. Wait, we even have we talk. Yeah, that's about exactly what I'm going to talk about, John. You don't. You didn't let me get to intervention. Uh, and then and, and then the capsulology, right? Uh, so the intervention was, uh, the plasma exchange part was simple. It was plasma exchange, uh, seven sessions in the first 14 days. Uh, this was the same as what was done in MEPEX. And the replace... And then a, sh and a, sh a sham plasma exchange for the placebo group? No. The placebo group got huh? nothing. So it was open label. It wasn't blinded. Open yeah. label? Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know how they would do sham plasma exchange, but they did not do sham plasma exchange. You'd have to anesthetize the patient and the and the uh, and the, and the tech. What the renal denervation studies do it? Why not? <laughs> yeah, I know. That's when you really care about the outcome. You do sham procedures. Yeah, this is this is a that was a single center study. This was a yeah cheaply done multi center study. Um, yes, only nine right. Uh, so the steroids was uh, so both groups got the same dose in week one. And, but after week one, uh, the reduced dose group, that's the intervention on the low-dose steroids, they were on 50% of the dose. Um, and we go through the example in the table. So, for example, um, you know, someone who was 75 kilograms would get 75 milligrams of pre uh, steroids, whereas the uh, reduced dose would, it would go down from 75 to 40 uh, and then to 30, whereas the uh, uh, standard dose steroids would be tapering by roughly 5 uh, to 10 milligram per week these would be a, a little bit more rapid taper. But then they start to converge together. So by um, uh, roughly the 22-23 week mark, they are on 5 milligrams uh, of steroids in both arms. Uh, so that's how the interventions worked. Uh, but uh, what, about, what else about uh, their induction therapy? So they could either get cyclophosphamide or rituximab, uh, but the centers had to decide before that this is what they were going to do for all their patients. So pe people could decide to do IV cyclophosphamide for induction. They could decide to do a PO cyclophosphamide or they could use rituximab. So as we shall see, there were all three of uh, the induction regimes were used. And roughly after three to six months of cyclophosphamide, they uh, were switched to azathioprine at least until week 52. That's one year after which, you know, the local investigators could do what they wanted. And I think that's all I had. I guess so for the induction therapy, um not a lot here for capsulology since we didn't really have any fun kind of placebo preparations. Oh. Um, but I learned that oral cyclophosphamide comes in a blue pill or capsule. So it can either be all blue or it can be a combo of a white and blue if you take the capsule. So it kind of reminds me of Important not the, to confuse it with your Foslo. Yeah. Right. Also blue the and little white. Blue Make pill. sure it's Foslo, not Cytoxin. <laughs> Jesus. Absolutely. So it's a, the little blue pill. So kind of naturally. I'm sure it's a pretty think, good birth control, actually. It made me think about the Matrix <laughs> and the red pill. And so maybe the uh, some group here should have gotten a placebo red pill. I don't know what effect that would have had. Um, intravenous cyclophosphamide um, is a little white powder cake. That's how it's described. Um, and it's reconstituted with um, whatever volume of normal saline you want and similar preparation for the rituximab. 
Um, so not super exciting, but cyclophosphamide oral is the blue pill. I think that's the take home that I have for this episode's capsulology. Delightful. So IV cyclophosphamide. Um, I guess also also prednisone versus prednisolone. Prednisone needs conversion by the liver to the active prednisolone. Um, prednisolone does come in pink pills, which prednisone does not. Prednisone comes in usually white or orange. Um, another little fun tidbit. So if you drop them on the floor, that's how you can tell the difference. Pink versus orange. Pink is prednisolone. The other thing I think that, that I thought was very thoughtful about the methods was uh, they did a lot of stratification. That when you had a, a study this size, they were able to stratify uh, patients that were randomized to both to both arms by a severity of pulmonary hemorrhage, by the form of uh, whether they get rituximab, oral, or IV cytoc, cyclophosphamide. The uh, ANCA subtype. Uh, uh, the ANCA subtype, and I think the renal function also was another one, whether they were on dialysis or high credit. Kidney function, not renal Which, function. You said they, that kind of pretty nicely segues into the results, um, if we're ready to and, go and, there. And, and the... All right, so I'm going to dive into the results. Um, so uh, we discussed a lot about the power calculations and the size that they wanted. So they ended up with 704 patients from 95 centers, as we discussed, from 16 countries. Um, these patients were followed for a median of almost three years. Um, and so I'm going to briefly go through the massive table one, which takes up the entire page, um, and just kind of highlight um, the characteristics. As it should. Yeah, That's absolutely. table one. And uh, just for any, you know, Medical students, no p-values because this is a randomized controlled trial, so we don't have the p-values. Um, so the in the table one, we have the four groups, so uh, plasma exchange, no plasma exchange, reduced dose steroids, and standard dose. And so our population that we had in this trial, these were individuals around 60 years old, around 40% of them were, were women, around 60% were MPO positive, uh, the rest were PR3 or pertinase 3 positive. Uh, the median creatinine um, was 3.7 to 3.8 milligrams per deciliter. Um, for our friends in Europe, 330 micromoles per liter. Uh, about 20% of these patients were already on dialysis. Um, from a pulmonary hemorrhage standpoint, 70% had no hemorrhage, 10% um, had severe hemorrhage, and the rest had hemorrhage that was not severe. Almost all patients in all four groups um, had kidney involvement, but 40% had lung involvement, uh, about 30% in each arm had ear, nose, and throat involvement. Um, and interestingly, 10% uh, had uh, skin involvement. Um, so those were kind of what I thought were the highlights. There are other variables in table one. Um, I'm not going to touch on those here. Does that seem low to you? Only 10% with, does skin involvement include any rash? I feel like that's a pretty usual finding that there's a rash somewhere in that lower extremity or. Uh, I mean, they, yeah, I mean, they describe it as cutaneous. Um, I personally, I haven't seen that many ankyvasculitis, but I've, I have not really seen the rash. Yeah. Fifteen percent got rituximab. I don't know if you mentioned that. The rest of them were cyclophosphamide. Uh, yeah. So for the for the planned mm -hmm. immunosuppressive treatment, about fifteen percent got rituximab. About um, half IV cyclophosphamide, and the rest oral. What do you guys use? We use oral, oral. cyclophosphamide oral or rituximab. rituximab. Oral or IV cyclophosphamide. You guys are all yeah. cyclophosphamide. Jenny, what do you guys use? Yes, yeah, cyclophosphamide. Or rituximab. So, so in, in our uh, we are poor, right? So rituximab is expensive. 
um so we have to go through a like a prior authorization it may it may be expensive but you forgot that it's not inferior and i and i hate cytoxaclofosamide right i i i honestly honestly hate i've caused so many bad infections in my life so i viscerally hate cyclophosphamide uh, but the rave and retex vast trials which are the two comparisons of cyclophosphamide and uh, retex did not show that infections were lower with retex yeah no that, that that's like the, my perception weird, is that it's worse right? it feels but like it doesn't yeah. yeah i agree doesn't bear out in the studies I'm going to jump in. I'm, I I agree that it was pretty great that this table one is, is a full page, but I really wanted it to be about a page and a quarter because uh, there, there are a couple things that really jump out at me that is not being mentioned that seem kind of important. Like, how long did they have the disease for? Have they had previous treatment? And how many of them were new onset, really a new diagnosis? As a, uh, uh, the history of absolutely. Um, I, left out, I left out that the history of vasculitis was in about 10%. Um, they don't really... Yeah clearly define what that means yeah. um, but i totally agree and they don't even mention the biopsy right how many of them had a kidney biopsy yeah our point of contention too i mean it's such a big deal to everybody yet we don't really know where we fall and it should i mean obviously randomization worked but you're curious at least what proportion of patients this existed in that to think about contextually how much does this generalize to my patient that i see in front of me yeah i think as jordan as you mentioned before like people that got plasma exchange before um, does that matter yeah, and I mean, honestly, like, this is not a long-duration disease until you end up with a bad outcome. So if someone's had this for a couple of years already, they're such a different person than someone who's coming in with brand-new disease. Um, and so I just think the duration of, of diagnosis is just such a big deal in this disease to just not know the differences across people. Um, and the, also just the way that the disease progresses, there's different behaviors. There are some people who do have this like sort of more quieter, quieter version of the disease and who have more severe relapsing disease. And I know they described that it needed to be a severe uh, disease to be included in the, in the trial. But if, what if they'd been milder before and now suddenly it's severe? And, and what is different about those people and how much does that matter? So I just would be curious to know what those people look like and if they were represented or not. And when that data comes out, we will discuss it in NEFJC. <laughs> Actually, that's probably not true. It'll have me in the modern journal. We'll forget about it. Okay. I, yeah. An observational trial would, or study would have been crucified for not describing that kind of information. So that's all. Uh, yeah, so um, a lot of data here. I'm going to start first with the outcomes according to plasma exchange or not. Um, so the first uh, data that they report is that there was no interaction between the glucocorticoid regimen, standard or reduced, and the plasma exchange assignment, p-value of 0.72. Um, so talking about plasma exchange versus not, the primary outcome of death or progression to end-stage kidney disease was in 28% of the plasma exchange group versus 31% of no plasma exchange. Um, that gave us a hazard ratio of 0.86. Their 95% confidence interval uh, crossed one. Um, they did a few sensitivity analyses that I won't get into the specifics of, which also found similar results. Um, their um, analyses for secondary outcomes, they found no significant differences, and these included death from any cause, end-stage kidney disease, both of those outcomes alone, sustained remission, serious adverse events, as well as serious infection at one year. Um, in their supplement, uh, they include their subgroup analyses looking at the effect of plasma exchange on the primary outcome. They did not find any interaction, and the groups that they looked at were age, their cutoff was 60, 
severity of kidney disease, ANCA subtype, severity of lung hemorrhage, as well as the type of induction immunosuppression that was used. And serious adverse events and sustained remission were uh, pretty similar in both groups. Um, as for so the, that, go ahead. So that, that that's kind of like your your sensitivity analysis. You kind of went through all your different subtypes, and it didn't seem to work in any of them. Uh, yeah, but even for their uh, primary composite, they did sensitivity analyses. They did a, a primary analysis. They did a partially adjusted, which, where they didn't they included different variables or they left out some. They did a per protocol versus an intention to treat. I'm, I'm sorry, and, and, and I, I'm just sorry. What is what is a partially adjusted analysis? What, I don't even know what that means. What, what are we what are we doing there? Yeah, so they they said that they used a model that was fitted only with trial group assignments versus the other. Um, covariates that they use to stratify. I'm going to let Swap and Jordy help me with that one. Yeah, what does it partially adjusted mean there? So um, I'm just looking at that. They, in the primary analysis, they so even the primary analysis is adjusted. Uh, so the primary analysis was adjusted with the use of a model fitted with the trial group assignments and the minimization strata as covariates. Yeah, so what I said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with so, you, Samir. So, so. That, was, that, that was the world's worst explanation. <laughs> I have no idea. So what the, uh, the partially adjusted analysis is uh, sort of like a crude analysis. Uh, to put it... That's a crude... That one's partial, crude? It's basically telling you it's not adjusting for several multi, multiple variable analysis. It's just which we shouldn't do, right? We, we you shouldn't do it in a trial. We shouldn't expect it, right? With a good yes. But you can do it in a trial, and it shouldn't impact your results of a trial substantially if your trial was performed correctly. Exactly. And people do adjust trial findings. It's not necessarily wrong to adjust a trial finding. The key is in a two by two factorial study, you might want to adjust by the other assignment to make sure that that wasn't associated with. Even though we found that there was no interaction, even though there was no interaction, the goal still is, can adjust yeah. by it. You can't and, look for an interaction because there's not power to look for an interaction, even though I would actually really want to in this particular study because we're looking at two different things that are associated with infection risk. Um, and so there is some overlap of the interventions, but you can't. But adjusting for it tries to get at that a little bit. Okay. So so I guess okay. the partially then, adjusted did adjust for the, like the steroid one would adjust for the and vice versa, but nothing else. Gotcha. Um, okay. and, and the classical thinking is, sorry, that makes the classical sense. thinking is that you should not adjust, but uh, a lot of people have, you know, I, and I, that was the thinking that even I had, but in the last one year, at least, you know, Andrew Althaus and the other people on Twitter, they have made a very, very strong case that have converted me that you should adjust for the baseline covariates. You know, for example, so if you remember, let's go back, um, sorry, I'm Samir, I'm, I'm, uh, hogging the attention here. But if you go back to the Sensipar, was it Evolve? He's such a shy boy. <laughs> uh, but but wasn't it Evolve? Uh, it was Evolve where they had bad right. randomization. Right. And, and, and they had to they had to stick to the not adjustment for baseline covariates because that was their protocol. And they, right. And they got... And then they did present the uh, adjusted analysis and they got hammered for it and, and no one believed it. Uh, I mean, even I was like, hey, you know, that wasn't kosher. Yeah, it's funny that you bring up Evolve is exactly what I was thinking of when you said that they now we now we're allowed to adjust for covariates. I mean, Chertow can't go to sleep and he's like, <laughs> That's Glenn Chertow, lead author of Evolve. Sorry, I didn't mean to be dropping names. 
Go ahead, Samira. Um, all right, so I'm going to uh, finish up with the results here. So um, the second set of results is for the glucocorticoid standard versus reduced. Um, so for this primary outcome, they did the non-inferiority analysis, and the reduced dose regimen was non-inferior to the standard dose. The outcome, primary outcome occurred in 28% of the reduced group compared to 26% of the standard group, um, so absolute risk reduction of about 2%. Um, and they did a both per protocol and intention to treat analysis that yielded similar results. Um, there was one secondary outcome that was significantly different. Um, within the first year, there was a significantly higher incidence of serious infection in the standard dose group. Um, however, over the entire study period, the adverse um, kidney-related events were more common in the reduced group, though the incidence of end-stage kidney disease was no different. Um, so I assume that by adverse kidney-related events, they meant they meant acute kidney injury, but I, I couldn't really find um, a really clear yeah, definition so, so that of that. come up, and uh, they asked uh, Dr. Walsh uh, during the tweet chat, and he said that it was just a bunch of, uh, you know, small gas board of this and that. There was nothing specific that he could pinpoint. Um, so it wasn't really, it. Yeah, it was a bit of this and a bit of that. Um, and so their supplementary table looking at this. Sounds like a scientist. <laughs> a bit of this and a bit of that. That's all, you know. <laughs> Sounds like a real precise study. Yeah, kind of like how I described partially adjusted analysis, the same thing. Um, yeah, that's right. So a supplementary table uh, showed no significant interactions and their subgroup analyses, again, the same subgroups. Um, but just to kind of round out the supplementary data, um, they did have a table that showed the results of the quality of life um, survey data at one year, and there were no difference in either plasma exchange versus no plas plasma exchange or uh, standard versus reduced steroid dose. Um, so I think those are the highlights of the... So can we can we go results. back to the subgroup analysis? So Absolutely. Um, they, they, don't inter they don't present the interaction p-values. Really what you want to see is the interaction p-values. I do suspect that, you know, the confidence intervals really overlap significantly. So none of the PE values were significant. On the other hand, people are reading the tea leaves, right? So if you see the pulmonary hemorrhage in the plasma exchange, it seems that, you know, the at least the point estimate is sort of like 0.6 for those who had pulmonary hemorrhage and, you know, 0.8 for those who did not. Uh, so you can't say if it crosses one that there's no interaction? Yeah, there were. Yeah, yeah. They, they mean, they, no not way. just crossing one, but they overlap so much, right? Um, uh, yeah. But, but uh, similarly, in the steroid uh, subgroups, if you see the people who got, uh, I'm sorry, swap. What's over the the uh, bars? Uh, the 95 percent conf. The 95 percent confidence intervals. Yeah. The, the graphs are sort of. For what? So if they overlap, so it means that the results. P, you still need p value. Um, it would be nice to have the p value for the interaction. Uh, but if the uh, if the ninety five percent confidence intervals overlap, whether they cross one or not, if they overlap, it's very likely that the two populations are not heterogeneous. So uh, the the benefit of Plex in those who got pulmonary hemorrhage or those who do not get pulmonary hemorrhage is not that different. And these don't just overlap. I mean, the ninety five percent confidence intervals pass the next measurements um, actual point right. estimate. So, like, no, so it's not a per so what Swapnil is alluding to is it's not perfect to say if ninety five percent confidence intervals overlap or not that you do or don't see an interaction. But it's usually a good estimate if you see that they're that they're overlapping with each other. There most likely is not a significant difference across two groups. But these you're seeing the ninety five percent confidence intervals all the way on the other end. Like, there's just there's really very unlikely to be. An 
an interaction with any of them. But Ron yeah, Falk, yeah. Ron Falk, in the editorial said that you need to really exactly. worry about. So in fact, even you, in the in the in the steroid subgroup, no. <laughs> yeah. So so in the steroid subgroup, he uh, the rituximab, uh, you know, it's like one. The point estimate is one point eight six. Uh, favoring standard uh, versus you know the cyclophosphamide is like 0.84 and 1.08 and again it's exactly you know the 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 95 percent confidence confidence intervals does cross the point estimate but I, I it's it's really really bad that they allowed Ron Falk to say that like he's saying oh go ahead use yeah. plex with, with you know use high dose steroids with the rituximab it's it's irresponsible it's statistically um, ignorant and um, uh, and New England should not have allowed it. I think it's it's don't don't stop. I, Keep I, going. Keep I, going. The fact that they allowed this, You're, you have guys are taking on Ron. What do you really? What do you really? What do you really? <laughs> like that guy needs a statistics, <laughs> a statistics one hundred and one lesson. You know, you should send him back to the the school of epidemiology to understand epi one hundred and one. It's bad. It's really. Did he ever took an yeah, epi course? Yeah, it's really really bad. It's awful. It's uh, it's negligent. It's uh, it's shoddy practice. The peer reviewer should have struck that out. Shame on you, New England. And shame on you, Ron Fall. <laughs> I'm not getting invited to you. And <laughs> I know. They have really good parties, though. <laughs> okay, New York City's better. Come up here. Uh, Severe, do we got anything else in results? Have we uh, no, I think I, I even went through the whole supplement, so I think I'm good. Uh, but are there results that you would have liked? Jenny, Jenny, what do you, Jenny, what have you been holding back on us? Um, so I was substituting in for Matt during that time. <laughs> <laughs> There's one of us has to be asleep. That's right. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, to honor Matt, I had to be asleep. But I, I hope I hope Jordan you're recording. Unlike Matt. <laughs> yeah. Well, I am recording, but you, you might hear some soft snoring <laughs> in the background. <laughs> That's her dog. Yeah. <laughs> There's no way Jenny would snore. Jordy, what do we miss? So I, I think I, I think it was a really well done trial, especially for the fact that this is such a hard group of patients to recruit for, and the huge amount of numbers, and that it, I think someone described it as a Herculean effort, and I, I wholly wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, the, I mean, nitpicking. This is all what I, what I've sort of been bringing up. There were a couple of things that we started sort of alluding to as as being issues. One being when you do a two by two factorial design, it's so important that there's no potential interaction between the two assign the two treatment assignments because if there is you can't explore for that interaction obviously this is a negative study we wouldn't really be able to look for an interaction anyway but for instance our one actual positive finding was this infection risk difference at one year between um, the high and the low dose steroid group and I really would have wanted to know if the plasma exchange had a difference in that um, because we know that plasma exchange may have some uh, different risk in terms of infection compared to some of these induction therapies, and, and is that something that we would have seen a difference based on the dose of steroids? Uh, to me, that seems clinically significant, um, but this is really a common issue in 2 by 2 factorial design studies or any factorial design study because you're trying to leverage a group of patients that have the same issue that you want to start to that you want to look at two different trials at the same time in. And your goal ideally is to look at two trials that are just incredibly different from one another, but how often are you actually asking two incredibly different questions in the same population of patients? So it's, it's, it's a hard thing to do perfectly and very few trials have been able to really succeed in that. Um, so I can't give them too much criticism, but I really would have loved to be able to look at that. Yeah, so so along those lines, you know, I'm thinking of the stuff that I would have liked to see. I probably, Dr. Walsh, 
and and the others are making you know have a list of papers that they are going to publish in the next few months um so for e- for example we talked about the outcomes being eskd eskd or death uh they present the hazard for eskd and the hazard for death but they don't actually give you the crude numbers even uh you know in the table 3 um yeah. i would have liked to see some of those numbers uh, it's just the so we have the crude we have the crude numbers for the 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 composite right. outcome exactly. just not the individuals that's exactly. you know it's not a big deal but i would have right. just liked to have more data uh, shown we didn't see any of the kidney biopsy uh, data but again that i think is coming uh, which he mentioned that all that is coming the other thing is that uh, the reason why the eskd and death is important is because uh, even in mepex it was the eskd outcome that was positive right death was not positive uh that wasn't that different uh and the composite wasn't that impressive at 5 years so if there is a signal in eskd uh um, alone uh and again you know they they did not see that but um if we put that together with mepex uh, a meta analysis might show that uh, there is a eskd benefit and the cochrane people actually have done that they went ahead uh, a couple of maybe a month ago uh they used data from the unpublished pexivas it was very strange you know that this came out uh, and and i have a history with cochrane of not liking what they do so take that conflict into um, account but they published a systematic review of treatment for anka vasculitis your conflict of interest you wait, wait your conflict of interest is that you don't like other publications by the cochrane group i just want to make sure we got this straight that's what so, it is i i don't know how much you want me to talk about this uh the, the Oh, oh, unload, buddy. Bring it. Yeah, I have some issues with this particular Cochrane analysis. Yeah, yeah. So the um, so my issues with Cochrane are with the Cochrane hypertension group, and Cochrane has many groups. Uh, the hypertension group is Canadian, and I'm being very un-Canadian by saying I don't like any of the work that the Cochrane hypertension group has done. You know, I have ranted about it. I've been called a dog by them for doing that. Um, but the the kidney group is actually based in Australia. Uh, their work is not. bad is what i can say uh, uh, but in this case they produced a systematic review two months about a month ago or so and every, everyone knew pexi was was published uh, i don't know why they could not have waited uh, but they went ahead they were impatient or, or maybe they had their own cycle and their own logistics they included the data from what mike had presented at the ara conference from what i can understand what dr walsh had presented and they made up that systematic review so they did not have the new england paper i presume they did not have the new england paper data uh, of that and they made up the systematic review it says that there is an eskd benefit uh, in their systematic review it's a low confidence estimate but they say there is a benefit which i found a little bit bizarre the i mean the 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 6 month or the 12 month yeah, yeah, right yeah. is it or one of them was only two studies you can't do a meta analysis of two studies right, in the right exactly that's why they they do the meta analysis and they say it's a low confidence um yeah to take that cochrane uh yeah and a lot of people in, in i i remember um what's his name uh, john booth had uh, was presenting uh, and he people were parsing that survival analysis and trying to see you know Uh, that was presented at ERA, and they're trying to say, "Hey, you know, it looks like the e- there is an early benefit, uh, and then that wears off. So maybe say there is some delay in dialysis in the survival curves or whatever um, if from the PEXIVAS uh, data that was presented. Uh, I, I don't know if you. Uh, But now, now that it's published, we don't see this, right? We don't see there, there, at least they say that there's no survival. There's definitely no survival benefit. Right. Um, 
but no but I was saying that. that we don't no see ESK. and no and, and no ESK and no ESKD ESKD benefit. benefit. But I, again, like we don't I, get the raw numbers, but they say there's none. Okay, so uh, KDGO last did their GN update in 2012, so we're eight years out. This is significant new data. There's new data all over GN. Uh, next time, next time they republish that those guidelines, what's it going to say for? Uh, for uh, ankle associated vasculitis, I think they will find wiggle room and do something mischievous. Yeah. I, I up to the discretion of each physician, right? Yeah, I agree. Even though this is our one level one A study that we could actually cite in a kidney st- in a in a kidney guideline. Yeah, yeah. I'm g- I'm going to go the other way. I think I think they I think they I think uh, plasma exchange gets thrown under the bus. It, it wasn't a very powerful recommendation before. It was a one C, and I think they're gonna, with this study, it, you know, it's one of these things that if you ignore a study that's five times the size of your last study and really was impeccably done across the board, and no major methodological problems, you kind of start to say, "Well, why are we doing these studies?" Exactly the point. So, in, in during the uh, Asia chat, there was some uh, person who, you know, you, you start off the FGC chat by saying, "This is who I am." And this person started off the chat by saying, hey, I am so-and-so person and uh, I'm going to do plasma exchange for pulmonary hemorrhage despite Pexivas. Th- that was his first tweet of the chat. So I replied to him. I was I was rounding, but I saw that I couldn't help myself. I said, you know, exactly that point. We complain that in nephrology, we don't do randomized control trials. So someone does a randomized control trial. So we say, oh, I don't like the results. I'm not going to follow them. And what's the point? I think there is a significant perception that plasma exchange has no downside and that you should just do it and even if there's a large trial like this that shows no benefit if i feel like i have not seen those adverse events then why not do it right especially in pulmonary hemorrhage i'm not saying that i agree but i'm saying that i have seen that attitude um among the community i I have a hard time saying we don't see like one of the primary problems with uh, plasma exchange is the concern of bleeding and if the patient's already bleeding, it's hard to determine why they're bleeding again, whether it was due to the uh, the intervention. Exactly. Or not. So if you, no, I'm not saying like the, the a thrombocytopenic patient, but in the one that you know is does not have anything else going on. And as you said, we may contribute their infection to the immunosuppression or whatever, and not necessarily blame the plasma exchange. But you know, we don't really exactly. know. And and in the now we haven't seen the causes of death and all that in Pexivas, but if you go back to the five-year um, data on MEPEX, the, most of the deaths were infections um, in both groups, in, in the plasma exchange group as well as the steroids. So if there is severe hemorrhage, how is plasma exchange going to prevent infectious deaths, right? It doesn't make sense to me. Uh, if you're worried that the plasma exchange is going to cause respiratory failure and they're going to die because of that, that's what they're going to die because of. How is plasma exchange going to you know, prevent those uh, deaths by preventing infections? just doesn't make sense to me uh, if the dead are infectious. But evil humors. Yeah, evil humors, exactly. <laughs> why? That's why I always go with leeches first when I get uh, ANCA-associated vasculitis. You can't go, you can't, can't, there's just no downside to that. Get them on a lot of them The early. leeches remove the antibodies, uh, I guess. Yeah, well, they do. <laughs> okay. Uh, does anybody have any wrap-up thoughts on this? Uh, 
I'm a little biased because Peter, Peter Merkel, the second uh, author, was my first uh, attending as a resident, but I, I still think... And do you like him or not like him? Uh, <laughs> that was a lot of pause. And it uh, subscribe. <laughs> yeah. It was, see, what, when you said that you knew him, it was unclear whether which which direction it made it go. <laughs> It's uh, he was pretty. He was he's like a huge personality in a good way, and his wife is like his polar opposite and works with us in our division. Um, Laura Denver, she's an incredible trialist, also. Uh, so I, I both like he's he's like a big personality in a good way, but also in a I couldn't get a word in kind of way. Um, but no, he's you couldn't get a word in. Oh I my, couldn't get a word that's in. frightening. Uh, he, uh, so yeah, no, so I'm a little biased. That's all. Who knows in what direction? Uh, but uh, again, and with Swapnil and all these discussions, we, a lot of us really respect a lot of the people who are in this study, but I think with good reason, I think we all think that this was an incredibly well done study. And if I, I think it would be really cool if Kdigo, Kdoki do what ADA did and actually change their guidelines pretty quickly, like what they did, what, like what ADA did with SGLT2s. Like stand up, say let's do an edit, let's start putting this, making this public, and let people really know that we're thinking about this seriously immediately. Um, that would be a pretty cool statement out of all of this. Yeah, I'd like, I'd, li I'd like to see that. Uh, so this concludes the glomerular filtrate section of the top of the uh, podcast. We're going to move on to the uh, proximal tubular secretion. Uh, Swapnil, do you have a proximal tubular secretion? I'm scrolling through Twitter, trying to find out something. Okay, we'll give you we'll give you some time. That's no problem. Samira, what do you got? Um, so I want to make a plug for Nef Madness, which will go live on Friday, March thirteenth. What do you mean go live? What is what is Nef Madness? Uh, so Nef Madness is uh, this is the eighth year of the international uh, educational game that's played out on social media, and so Nef Madness is an opportunity for individuals to learn about hot topics in nephrology that will be pit up against each other in a bracket similar to the NCAA March Madness tournament. And so for is it true that the NCAA got the idea for the brackets from March? Oh yeah, Nef totally. Madness? Yeah, Nef Madness came first, and then uh, going backwards, March Madness realized what a great idea we had, and we came up with this bracket concept basically together. Um, and so, how the game works is that uh, you review the bracket, you read blog posts on each of our eight regions, uh, learn a lot about those topics, and then make your picks and try to predict who our prestigious blue ribbon panel will predict to be the winner. Um, so we're very excited for this upcoming year. We have a lot of great uh, regions and teams lined up and I'm hoping for an exciting competition. Uh, so again, it goes live Friday, March 13th. By, by prestigious, you mean the guys who always make the wrong choices, right? Uh, I'm not going to comment. I'm just going to say that they are people that we think are quite trustworthy and are- But the community does view. not. The community thinds they suck. Tradi That's traditionally, but we, but we, we try to do better this year. Swapnel just, Swapnel just can't play the game very well, and he is a sore loser. That's all that Swap, is. Swap, if you want to be on the panel, we can we can maybe talk later. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'll tell you, I, I was, I've, I've, been, I've been looking over the brackets. It is an excellent Nef Madness bracket. They, uh, we have done a really good job. We have a lot of really good topics. I think people are going to love this year. I mean, it's never going to be as good as uh, Sharp versus Camel. We just gotta concede that we're never gonna get, we're never gonna reach that high point again. But outside, outside of that, it's really good. And if anyone still um, does not get it, please feel free to direct message any of us in the filtrate. We're happy to try to explain it. 
Yeah, but you want to, you, if you're a fellowship program director or interested in medical education, you want to pr- promote nephrology, score some time between March 13th and what is it, April 3rd, I believe, to reserve uh, like noon conference or morning report, maybe two hours and have your residency program or your fellowship go through this together. It's a super kind of fun discussion-oriented uh, uh, way to go through this. Uh, a lot of different programs do this. Jenny t- Jenny was telling me how they do it at Northwestern. Can you describe that, Jenny? Yeah. You guys so, do a nice job. Yeah, so we've done it two ways. One is the traditional, you know, discuss for two hours uh, way. But then last year, what we ended up doing uh, was trying to get more active participation from each fellow, but more specifically the second year fellows who have a little bit more downtime than the first year fellows. And so what we did was we paired up each second year fellow with their clinic preceptor, or, you know, if you guys don't, if you guys have a standard fellows clinic and not necessarily a assigned preceptor, just any faculty member. So we had, um, we have four fellows in each class and then each fellow faculty pair tackled two regions, and then they presented arguments to the group as to who they thought should advance. And if there was, you know, if they disagreed with each other, then there was a first-year fellow assigned to each of those pairs who was a tiebreaker. So it was only until uh, we got to the final four that the whole group started to vote. And what ended up happening was not no one was happy with the final group bracket, but the bracket actually was in the top 10. Oh wow! Uh, so, <laughs> nice, nice. So I think it's yeah, just because you get a sam- good sampling in terms of what how everyone differs in their opinions. So yeah, but it was very efficient. We finished within one hour, and oh, wow. ate, we ate ninety dollars worth of Taco Bell too. <laughs> just thinking what ninety dollars worth of Taco Bell looks like is giving me indigestion. <laughs> Excellent, Jordy. Did, did Penn do anything for Neff Madness? Uh, they, we, we have tended to, I actually was not part of the pen one last year. I was part of the crick one where I crowdsourced all of the crick investigators and got everyone to vote for, uh, which groups they wanted. And we did absolutely horribly with the crowdsourcing. It was pretty great. <laughs> well, uh, you know, don't take that person. I think then, then, uh, horrible. I, I know more about Neff Menace every year than anybody. And I then, do Didn't we get Dr. Feldman to do his brackets last year? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we had done, Harv did his own, and then I created a survey monkey for all the Crick investigators to fill out which ones they wanted and used data science. To and how did Dr. Feldman how we were gonna do, vote. Joel? How did, how did, yeah, how did he do? <laughs> he was horrible. Yeah. Right? He was right near the bottom of the whole pack. It was really embarrassing. <laughs> Samira, what do they do at Sinai? Um, so we do kind of similar to, um, I guess, a hybrid of what Jenny does, but we have a more open discussion just with everyone. Um, it takes longer than an hour because everyone just kind of has a free-for-all. Um, but we assign each of the regions to one of our senior fellows who kind of reviews all the blog posts and does a mini presentation. Um, we had some kind of fun food and party favor type things that kind of went along with each region. And then we we draw a big um, bracket on our whiteboard and then fill it out. Um, so because of last year, we've extended our meeting from one hour to two hours this year. And so we're ready to go March 24th. We did very bad last year. So hoping we can turn our luck around. Ottawa, do they do anything? Do they, do they, do they understand basketball in Ottawa? 
you know who won the championship last year <laughs> there's a team no, there's a, no, there's no. a team from us it was it was megan markle <laughs> no way really <laughs> no it is it is a team from toronto right uh, if you if you remember how huh? how nba nice. works um so oh the raptors, oh yeah the no, that's the right the, the raptors won the, the nba championship right we do have a basketball right. team um though it's from toronto and toronto is like the new york right no one likes outside new york no one likes the yankees and you know outside boston no one likes the new england patriots it's sort of like that anyway um uh, so we we do the we do a two hour session um and i i have used uh, the uh, the slide the the awesome slide set put together by the nef madness team that's what i usually use um yeah so explain what this slide set is cuz this i think this is a key right piece. so the nef madness group puts together a very nice slide set it's like you know it's ready made all you do is download the slide set it's a powerpoint presentation and you walk through it it goes through each of the uh, regions one by one so if you are completely unprepared you can just use that uh, which i have been in the past uh, and it goes through you know each and and you vote as you go along and you can write down your sheets and then it goes to 16 and 8 and 4 and 2 um, so if you are under prepared like i often am it's a very very useful resource uh we i think i like jenny's idea so i i i will try something like that we do have a fellows clinic and preceptor so it'll be nice to bring in some of those preceptors and and put them in the, the hot slide seat slide set includes a lot of the visual abstracts um so you can go through individual papers with your group uh pretty quickly mm-hmm. excellent and what excellent. do you do joe uh so i i do a session with our fellows and last year we did in one hour and it was not fun because we had to race through that. I think we still went to an hour and a half. People were late and had to walk in and out. So uh this year I booked 4 hours oh and noon and morning wow. conference. <laughs> I just said give me all of March. And uh and so and I think I'm going to do kind of what Jenny does and kind of assign regions to the different fellows. It's a little awkward cuz we don't have a lot of time between uh March 13th in the first session for them to study but I think I will not show them any you know respect and just do it anyways that's my, my that's the plan and then I also and then I do another session with the residents yeah we're we're trying to get our residents more involved i feel like it's a little bit harder to get conference time from them yeah it is they are jealous of their time uh and then the other thing we're doing this year is we have a uh, we'll have um a two podcasts with the curbsiders and we're going to do uh at least one and maybe two well no then there could be a joint podcast with freely filtered and the curbsiders and then we may do just a freely filtered on one or two of the other regions so we're going to we're going to well, essentially what we're going to do is we're going to have podcast support to also help you learn about the different regions and that should be fun i have um, a filtrate yeah swap do you you have a secretion have a Yes, I do. So I thought I'll tell a quick uh, feel-good story, uh, which didn't start off as a feel-good story. Uh, one of my buddies uh, called Yoni Friedhoff uh, is uh, he's a family medicine doc who does uh, obesity medicine in Ottawa. Uh, so he's he's in private practice, uh, but he has an affiliation uh, with the University of Ottawa, and he's been a blogger for a long, long, long time. He's been on Twitter for a long, long time. and he tweets about you know obesity related stuff uh, he's very vocal uh, he's one of the good guys who talks about evidence and and you know being very um, patient centered so a few of and he has some supplements that he sells on his blog right he's the one who doesn't like people selling supplements on their blogs and and oh yeah so he criticizes people who sell supplements on their blogs and 
So uh, he criticized uh, a blogger who does sell supplements on his blogs, who is interestingly a nephrologist, who shall not be named. Oh, yeah, punk. yeah. So he criticized him, uh, and he's criticized many other people like that, right? Who are selling snake oil. Um, so uh, this nephrologist, uh, Dr. Fung, instead of just complaining and you know fighting on Twitter, which is what I do, he he decided to <laughs> complain to the university. He wrote a letter to the dean saying. Hey, this guy who's affiliated to you is is a bad person, and he de- does this thing on Twitter. Uh, so, so the uh, dean and his department head actually reviewed uh, on Twitter. They said, "Hey, Yoni, come and meet me." Uh, so Yoni said, "Whatever, I'll go and meet him." And he, they met with him, and they said, "You know, actually, I've seen what you do, and you do an awesome job with these blogs." He, like he's not an academic; he doesn't publish papers, right? Uh, so, he, but you do such an awesome job uh, with you know uh, knowledge dissemination public outreach and advocacy you should apply for promotion <laughs> so yoni applied for promotion and uh, uh, i met him there so both of us got promoted at the same time so he got promoted to associate professor uh, so because of jason funk's complaint about his tweets yoni friedhoff applied for promotion and got promoted to associate professor it's amazing yeah. and and on the day of uh, yeah. thank you doctor thank you dr fung you are really doing the lord and he he that the day he got promoted I, he told me the story when we met there and he put out a tweet thread uh, which he retweeted today because it's exactly been a year since this happened and i linked to it it's it's just an awesome story it's like you know shot and fraud it's like fantastic that makes me really happy. I used Yoni's uh, image that he found of somebody mismeasuring a blood pressure where it's an automated blood pressure cuff and someone has a stethoscope over the arm. Uh, and I use that in like every talk I give. <laughs> so he's my hero. I love that. That's a great mm-hmm. story. Hey, guys. Thanks for joining us. I think this was really good. I'm really excited about this one. This is, I thought, a good, a good talk, a good topic. Yeah. Uh, Hopefully you can get condensed more. <laughs> We're like at 90 minutes. I, I know we're long, but whatever we're long. <laughs> it, it costs the same to listen to it if it's an hour long or 90 minutes long. So be good for marathon trainers. Yeah.